What shall we hang? The holly or each other? From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is the fly in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench, the pain in the ass, my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, we're starting the Christmas season off right by sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of John McTiernan's 1988 action classic, Die Hard. Nakia, our plan for the month of December is to watch what the AV Club has called Christmas-adjacent films. These are movies that take place during the holiday season, but which really have bugger all to do with the holiday itself. And I think that, so I think this raises an interesting question. I mean, Die Hard is the classic example of this, and it's become a cliche to argue about whether it is or is not a Christmas movie. But let's get into it a little bit. And this question of what makes something a Christmas movie or not a Christmas movie. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite Christmas movie? Let's start there. Your favorite full-blown, official, everybody recognizes this as a Christmas movie, Christmas movie. I mean, mine is pretty, has probably been the same since I was a child, and uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. All I want is what I have coming to me. All oh, I want is my fair share. share. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> it's probably my favorite Christmas. <laughs> An excellent answer, not, however, a movie. <laughs> is it not a movie? It's not, it's a TV special it's a half an hour uh, long okay now we're okay we're splitting hairs now well I no that's a pretty <laughs> pretty important distinction actually <laughs> i consider it a movie um okay Ugh. um well then probably next on my list even though i had to take a break from watching it because it was on 24 hours a day every christmas for the past you know 10 years would be it's a wonderful life it's probably okay i think that's a christmas movie a common mm-hmm. answer Great film, Frank Capra. We just watched Mr. Smith Goes to Washington mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. But okay, so let's. So this is the conversation I want to have, though. So let's start with that. If I were being a devil's advocate, I could say that is no more or less a Christmas movie mm-hmm. than some of these movies that are considered Christmas adjacent. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, very little of that movie. It's told in flashback. Most is of it's about yeah. Christmas itself. Yeah, but. I think the themes and the mood of it are very Christmas. Which are what? What makes something... What are Christmas themes? I mean, this idea of sort of family and community and, you know, kindness and generosity and sacrifice. Uh, I mean, there's a fucking angel coming down, (laughs) talking him through, you know, all of... Clarence. All all that, you know, the importance of one person in everyone's life and the impact you have. So for me, the whole mood of Christmas and New Year's, it's this very distinct period of time when we're all trying to be our best selves. Right. That we should be being all year, but we aren't. Right. But somehow it just becomes the thing you have to do in these like three weeks or whatever. Isn't that what Bill Murray says at the end of Scrooge? Probably, that it's it's yes. the one time of year when we act like the people that we exactly. want to be or something like that. So, and that's, that's all that it's, it's a wonderful life is about, right? It's like George Bailey's life was, you know, what we all think we should be for the entire year, but mm. deeply fall short. 
So And it does, the movie does end in this big, first of all, like you said, it has the angel, it has the miracle quality, and then it ends in this big spirit of community, charity, and giving. And we're around the tree, and he's with his family, and yes. Obviously, I think it is a Christmas movie, but I'm just trying to get <laughs> I appreciate it. what the qualifications yes. are. I think here. it's mood and theme. I think it's a big... I think if scenes from the film could take place in a snow globe, it's probably a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's go through a few of these Christmas-adjacent films okay. and argue about whether they are or are not Christmas movies. Okay. Okay, so I went and looked at, you know, some of these. There's there's a million of these lists of Christmas-adjacent films on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I went and looked at them and, you know, identified some of the films that are on these lists that I know you have actually seen. Mm-hmm. So, Trading Places. Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie. It what Christmas makes it a Christmas movie besides Dan Aykroyd in a ratty-ass <laughs> Christmas Santa Claus suit with, like, stuffing fish into his pockets? I mean, that's a big part of it. <laughs> I do feel like what makes these, you know, quote unquote, Christmas adjacent movies, Christmas movies for me is this idea of like, there's some magic or energy in the air that only happens at Christmas that would make this situation possible. Like it needs to be this sort of heightened environment that is Christmas in order for it to sort of make sense. I feel like Christmas allows for the ridiculous a little bit of just like... That there is this idea that, like, anything could happen around Christmas. The sort of cosmic grace. Right. Anything can happen, right? Trading Places is based in a really sort of cynical... Because the foundation of it, right, is this sort of bet between Duke and Duke that they could take Eddie Murphy's character off the street and basically swap him out for Dan Aykroyd. Right. The sort of nature versus nurture argument, right? And that's a totally ridiculous... Like, who does... It's a ridiculous thing to do, and it's it's sort of a ridiculous situation. And so I think... That sort of holiday overlay, again, just creates space for absurdity. Okay. Um, so that's part of it. And then the other part is, I think, I mean, a lot of the great scenes of that film wouldn't work if it wasn't for Christmas. I mean, again, like you said, Dan Aykroyd's awesome performance as a drunken, belligerent <laughs> Santa, like eating, I think, like a whole salmon on a bus and people are like looking at him in disgust. And the whole Eddie Murphy's whole speech when they're sort of testing him on whether to um, buy or sell certain stocks. And it's all about like people's thinking around Christmas is like, I want to buy my kid the G.I. Joe with Kung Fu Grit. I can't buy my kid the G.I. Joe with Kung Fu Grit. Okay. You know, like that that. scene doesn't happen unless you're in the holidays. And then you have that awesome sequence on the train, like, which is we're now moving into New Year's sort of, but it's like, that's a holiday thing. And that scene doesn't happen unless it's the holidays. And so I just think if you sort of take that away, then you take away a lot of the magic that allows for this sort of heightened absurdity of that situation. Okay. I might give you that one. Okay. All right. How about, uh, is The Nightmare Before Christmas a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? Mm, This is a deep debate. Very deep debate. I consider it a Halloween, I mean, a Christmas movie. I think I do too. Because it's all about Jack being sort of sick of Halloween and like, I just want to do Christmas because. Right. I want to be the nice one. I want to be the nice one. I want to make the kids Mm -hmm. laugh and have it. So I think I, to me, it's a Christmas movie. It's about him getting the spirit of Christmas. It's not Santa Claus getting the spirit of Halloween. Exactly. Okay. All right. Okay. That was easy. (laughs) Okay. How about a a favorite of ours? We mentioned it about every third podcast, The Lion in Winter. (laughs) Absolutely a Christmas movie. (laughs) 
Now, that spirit of grace and but charity okay, and no, all but, of that that you're talking about right. is harder to come by there. Because this is real Christmas. This is the Christmas <laughs> we actually all have, which is you're with the family that you sort of hate <laughs> and you're all plotting how to kill each other. And your your presents are passive right. aggressive and so that's, you know, the Christmas that we all have. All these other ones have been the sort of idealized okay. idea of Christmases. This is the Christmas we actually so all have. So there's aspirational Christmas right. movies and then there's reality Christmas exactly. movies. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, well, that takes us into, let's talk about Bad Santa. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely a Christmas movie. Okay. It's a pretty dark movie. Again, well, I mean, again, we come back to this idea of like, Christmas is sort of dark. Like, yes, it is. When we are at our best selves, it is about generosity and it is about kindness and it is about family. But there's also loneliness and there's also melancholy. A lot of the greatest Christmas songs are sort of sad. Yeah. Um, And there's also, and again, moving into New Year's, it encourages reflection. And that reflection doesn't always result in, like, positive feelings about your life or what you're doing or where you are. (laughs) So there's also just an inherent... Um, melancholy to the season mm-hmm. as well. So I think Bad Santa is all about just like I, I regret actually, I and actually sadness. Think that's, I actually think that's a great Christmas yeah. movie. And it is, there is a redemption arc. There is a redemption arc. That's not sickly sweet. Mm-hmm. It's not treacly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he is basically screwed. Yeah. At the end of the movie, he becomes a better person. Yeah. Now, I never saw Bad Santa 2, which no, was I a, reportedly not. terrible. So <laughs> we won't talk about that. Uh, okay. In Bruges. Christmas movie. Okay, come on. <laughs> What better place to celebrate Christmas than in Bruges? Um, The architecture. (laughs) And again, the whole reason that they are in Bruges is because uh, the Lesser Finds sends them there (laughs) as a sort of... Wait. uh, You got to stop. Rafe Finds is not the Lesser Finds. That is ridiculous. As I said. You cannot possibly seriously think Joseph Fines <laughs> is the superior Fines brother. As I said, the lesser Fines sends the sort of assassin team to Bruges as a sort of final gift to Colin Farrell before they murder him <laughs> because he accidentally shot a little boy on his last job. And they do that because they think Bruges is a beautiful, wonderful place to be during the holidays and it's a nice sort of Here's your final. And he fucking hates it, he doesn't he? He fucking hates yeah, Bruges. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yes. So it doesn't work out that way. But <laughs> absolutely a Christmas movie. <laughs> but again, that is a movie that Colin Farrell spends most of the film deeply regretful and sad that he killed a little boy. And so it is, again, this sort of melancholy of like looking back on your life and realizing... He doesn't feel bad about being an assassin. He's fine with being an assassin, but he just, he shot a little boy by accident. And that's, I see. You know, there's no coming back from that. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Let's talk about a movie that has somehow become a standard Christmas classic played on 24-hour marathon. Mm-hmm. Love Actually. Yeah. Love Actually is, for me, a guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. Because I actually recognize... I actually recognize it is not a very good movie. No. And the so-called love stories in it are not very good love Mm-mm. stories. Mm-mm. The men are uniformly awful yeah. in that movie. And yet somehow it has become this Christmas classic. Well, I think love actually 
Was it the first? It may have been the first of those films that was like, let's bring together all these different actors and we need some sort of unifying theme that will bring them all together. Right. So Christmas, just like they have Valentine's Day, just like they have Mother's Day. Right. And I think there's even well, like I think New, there's Year's, a New Year's, there's Eve, New Year's movie. Eve movie. I think it's the only one of those movies yeah. that's watchable for one thing. So you need this reason to, again, sort of bring all these people together and you need a way to tie all these stories together. And again, Christmas is a time when anything can happen. And so great love story moments, quote unquote, can happen at Christmas. And, you know, you say the things at Christmas that you wouldn't necessarily say any other time of the year. Because, again, there's a sort of heightened feeling about it and magic around it. Like the fact that you secretly want to fuck your best best friend's friend's girlfriend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or wife, yes. yes, She's a wife at that point. Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Yeah. So that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a Christmas movie. It is a product. It is very much a product film. Like it's not. But it's cute. And you are very much in love with that little American girl. What's her name? Joanna. The little girl that can sing. Okay. Now you're making me sound like a pervert. You love her. Um. <laughs> I just say I see what little, you know, Jojen Reed saw in her. Um. So, yeah. I mean, it is a Christmas movie. To me, the only authentic storyline in that movie is with Emma Thompson Mm -hmm. and the great Alan Rickman, Mm -hmm. who is also in Die Hard. Mm -hmm. Like, that feels real to me. Because he's a cheating asshole? Yeah, and it's it's a very sad storyline in the end. I think they are the only couple that don't end up together at the end. Right. It's sort of implied that they have separated because he was kind of a cheating asshole. With the secretary that you think he should have been cheating with anyway. Uh, Again, I just say I understand Mm -hmm. the impulse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, he gave gave Emma Thompson the the Joni Mitchell CD instead of the necklace she was expecting. It's all... That's, again, the melancholy side of Christmas. That that seems very real to me. I think I like my Christmas movies a little on the melancholy side. Well, and, I mean, it has to be a Christmas movie because the soundtrack includes the awesome track, Christmas is All Around Us. So (laughs) Bill Nye's number one Christmas hit. (laughs) It has to be a Christmas movie at that point. Okay, okay. For, For Bill Nye, I will give you, I will give you that. Okay, well, as I said, we will be watching some of my favorite Christmas-adjacent movies throughout the month, and Mm -hmm. we can have the argument about whether they are or are not Christmas movies with each one. Mm -hmm. But let's move on to the movie that we're actually watching today. Okay. Die Hard. Mm -hmm. We thank you one and all and wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. But a team of terrorists... You want money kind of terrorists are you? Who said we were terrorists? Have their own holiday plans. And I'm telling you, you just got to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. But the one thing they didn't plan on was New York cop John McLean. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, mother... And you'll have it. They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Lady, do I sound like I'm ordered a pizza? Come to Papa, honey. Are you really an American? Only if New Jersey counts. What does he think he's doing? Good job. 
artillery on us. You appear here is the police. It's him. <laughs> He's an easy guy to like. Welcome to the party, pal. And a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis. Die Hard. Okay, so Die Hard is the painfully obvious example Mm -hmm. of a Christmas-adjacent movie. Mm -hmm. It's such an obvious choice for this that we actually weren't going to do it. Mm -hmm. It was too obvious. My initial plan had been to satisfy the Christmas-adjacent 80s action movie slot in our schedule with Lethal Weapon. Yeah. (laughs) But then I remembered that Mel Gibson is such an irredeemably awful human being. Yes. That that would probably color your perception of that movie. I think I pretty much refused to watch it. <laughs> you, so you were definitely reluctant. There just wouldn't have been an episode for to that week. watch it. It was, it was beyond reluctant. I wasn't going to watch it. So, <laughs> so we're going to watch Die Hard. Okay. That's where we came down for this first week. Now, as you... Complained at exhaustive length last week. You think you've seen this movie. Well, I basically have. We've watched at least 45 minutes of it. Yeah, I think if if I remember correctly, what happened was we started to watch it and about 45 minutes into it, for whatever reason, the sound got so out of sync Mm -hmm. that we couldn't keep watching it. Yeah. And then somehow I never talked you into going back and finishing it. Well, I because I watched it. At that once I've watched 45 minutes of something, I can claim that I've watched it. Like like in baseball a regulation game exactly. is after a certain number of innings. Exactly. That, yeah. So, I watched it. If you it. get rained out at that point, you don't have to do it over. And I have also seen the genius musical Work Hard or Die Trying Girl <laughs> by Gene Belcher of oh, Bob's God. Burgers. <laughs> Which is a mashup I don't of even watch that show and I've seen that episode about 12 times. Because it's fucking brilliant. A mashup of Working Girl and Die Hard. So I, I've seen Die Hard. <laughs> so you, you sort of know yeah, most of the, the things. Between the 45 minutes of the actual film that I've seen and then Gene's interpretation of Die Hard. But do you know which plot points belong to which movie? Of course, because I've, I've absolutely seen Working Girl. So I oh, know you've seen Working Girl. Okay, what belongs so. with Working Girl. The stuff that wasn't yes. working girl had to have been Die, die hard. hard. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, this all sounds like reasons why you need to watch Die Hard. No, these are all reasons why I don't need to watch Die Hard again. <laughs> okay, let's 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 do a little background here on Die Hard. Okay. So again, the year is 1988, directed by John McTiernan, who has helmed several very successful action or action adjacent films like Predator, The Hunt for Red October, the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. Um. It was produced by Joel Silver, who is one of those producers that has a certain style to his films. Um, He was responsible for the Die Hard franchise, the Lethal Weapon franchise, the Predator franchise, and the Matrix franchise, among many, many other films. Uh, The screenplay was by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. DeSosa, based on the 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. And Nothing Lasts Forever was Thorpe's sequel to a novel called The Detective that had been filmed in 1968 with Frank Sinatra. Hmm. So actually, when they set out to make this sequel into a film, they were contractually obligated to offer the role first to Frank Sinatra, who was then in his 70s. So this that would could have been, have been a, better a film. very different movie. I would have watched that. Really? You would have been more sure. excited for that? Why not? <laughs> I hate to tell you, Frank Sinatra was not a really awesome person either. No, I know. Okay. Most people aren't (laughs) awesome. (laughs) 
Okay. There have been rumors going around for years that this film was originally developed as a sequel to Arnold Schwarzenegger's Commando. Never heard of it. Um, it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. What more do you need to know? <laughs> so again, that's just another alternate reality version of this film that could have existed. Mm-hmm. And actually, there are a lot of alternate reality versions of this film that could have existed because Bruce Willis was literally the last choice to play this part. They took this script to every male actor in Hollywood, including reportedly Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds, Sylvester Stallone, Harrison Ford, Don Johnson, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, and Richard Dean Anderson of MacGyver fame. And they all turned it down. Was, um, what's his name, not considered an action star, or what was... Bruce Willis was, at the time, known pretty much only for TV from Moonlighting, and he was still on Moonlighting when he made this movie. So he was considered a lighter comedic actor, and a TV actor. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, he turned it down at first, too, because he was contractually tied up with making Moonlighting. Right. But then Sybil Shepard got pregnant, and they had to shut down production on Moonlighting for about 11 weeks, and that gave Bruce Willis a window in which he could make Die Hard. So expectations were fairly low for this film. Mm -hmm. It had a relatively modest budget for this kind of film. It was made for $28 million. In contrast, Midnight Run, which we watched a few months ago, had a bigger budget than Die Hard did. Mm Mm-hmm. But Die Hard ended up exceeding all expectations. It grossed over $83 million domestically, $140 million worldwide, and launched a franchise that, to date, consists of five movies which have grossed over $1.4 billion. It did turn Bruce Willis into an action star, for better or worse. Uh, It was the seventh highest grossing film of 1988. Die Hard has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Entertainment Weekly in 2007 named it the best action film of all time. And Bruce Willis's wife beater that he wears in the film is in the Smithsonian. <laughs> okay. So, obviously, this is a cultural touchstone mm. with which you need to be even more familiar than you already See, are. See, I feel like I'm good. <laughs> you sure? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that, actually. Yes. I feel like there should be a higher bar for that. For what? I get Dorothy's Ruby Red Slippers. I get Mr. Rogers' Cardigans. Archie Bunker's Chair. Archie Bunker's Fonzie's Chair. Fonzie's Jacket. Sure, what else is there? I don't know. I think Cosby's Sweaters were in there. I don't know that they still are. <laughs> they, might have, they might have put those back in storage <laughs> I think at his this sweaters point. were there at some point. Um... So, but yeah, the, the, you know, the stank ass tank top that Bruce Willis runs around Nakatomi Plaza in, I don't, I don't know that that. It does seem like a weird object yeah. for the Smiths. So, yeah. I mean, you want to put that in like a hard rock cafe? Yeah. Fine. At that level. Yeah. Or, you know, Planet Hollywood. Sure. Uh, but yeah, the Smithsonian, I'm not sure what the cultural yeah, no, I don't, I don't significance it, of that is necessary. exactly. But, okay. <laughs> you should write a letter. Real, I don't care that much. I've never even been to, <laughs> to that exhibit. Okay, well, so uh, what are you actually expecting from this experience? Um, Deja vu, since I've seen it. That's it. <laughs> well, I don't remember, you know, hugely enjoying it when I watched... Not enough that you wanted to go back and right, watch finish it, it again. Right, or so... finish the film, yeah. I'm not expecting... You might have just been in a cranky mood No, that I don't, day, I don't think that that's going to change. And I don't think it was cr- the Christmas season, so I think that might make a big that difference. Definitely, I think. I'm actually less likely to watch Christmas. Like, I just, because 
no, it becomes a problem. It's too much. What's um, what's too much? I just you just feel inundated with it all, and it's just too it's too much. Well, you've been complaining for weeks about them showing Christmas movies because they start before Thanksgiving. Yes, and that's just no. I feel like every year your window for what's acceptable gets, gets smaller. It really does get smaller. They're already it's December first as we record this. Yes. They're already showing Love Actually. Right. Which is already one of those films like Wonderful Life that I can only watch so much of before I'm just like I have yeah, seen. Yeah, they have ruined fifty billion they times. Have ruined, I can't watch it's a again. wonderful life, a Christmas story mm. and Love Actually mm. now by showing them twenty four hours a 24 day. Twenty four hours a day for three months before and after Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on that. So but when is the acceptable time to start watching Christmas movies? Is it like, you know? I mean, for me midnight personally. Midnight Christmas Eve, what, <laughs> what's your window? I want to say maybe the week before Christmas is when I start to, you know. But people want more Christmas than that. No, I understand. They wanted, you, you, I, you bitch about them putting up their Christmas lights too. Because again, they start in October. <laughs> it's just like, okay, then there is no season. Then we're just always in Christmas. So that, I just don't. But they want to enjoy the Christmas season for as long as possible. They want to enjoy their lights. They want to enjoy their tree. Mm-hmm. They want to enjoy the spirit of love and but there is no, togetherness. That's the problem. There is no spirit of love and togetherness. There's none of that. That's fine. If you like Christmas trees, okay, I guess. I just feel like what makes the season special is that it's, you know, a window of time and then it's gone. <laughs> that we have to be nice to each and other. And then you move on. <laughs> and you let it go. If any of you out there would like to comment on the unenthusiastic critics' war on Christmas, it is not a please war feel on free Christmas. to send us an email. I, if anything, deeply respect Christmas and want to, you know, honor the time within which it's and it's a, it's a fucking arbitrary ass date. But it, like, it's <laughs> okay, just sure. I I am not at war with Christmas. I just I feel like we started a little early, and <laughs> and I just I'm not there until like a week before Christmas, and then it's like okay, let's put on you know Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. Let's put up the tree. Let's do the whole thing, and then you know January first, take that shit down. I I'm just sitting here soaking up the the Dickensian charm. <laughs> He had lots of starving children in his books. <laughs> okay. So, you know. This is going to get us nowhere. Let's let's just go watch Die Hard. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Okay, during the break, Nikki and I watched Die Hard. Uh, Nikia, this was a commercial success. It was not instantly a critical success. Mm-hmm. Karen James in the New York Times said it had to be one of the most excessive films around, said it piles on every known element of the action genre onto the flimsy story of a New York cop who rescues hostages from a Los Angeles office tower on Christmas Eve. The strange thing is, James said, it works. Die Hard is exceedingly stupid, but escapist fun. Roger Ebert only gave it two stars out of four. 
He said there was a lot to like about it, including the action sequences and the performances, particularly Alan Rickman. But he objected to the abject stupidity of the police in this movie. He said, as nearly as I can tell, the deputy police chief is in the movie for only one purpose, to be consistently wrong at every step of the way, and to provide a phony counterpoint to Willis's progress. The character is so willfully useless, so dumb, so much a product of the idiot plot syndrome, that all by himself he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. Uh, but I think most people have come around to this view of David Crow writing at Den of Geek. He says, I'm just going to come out and say what everyone should already know. Die Hard is one of the most awesome, entertaining, and perfectly crafted action movies ever made. Its simple premise of a lone everyman having to battle terrorists in a skyscraper is a clever economical premise that we have seen a bajillion times in the last 25 years. Think Die Hard on a bus, speed. <laughs> Die Hard on a mountain, cliffhanger. Die Hard on a plane, con air. Die Hard on another plane, Air Force One. And you get the idea. But nothing beats the original. What did you think? Die Hard is an excellent film for its genre. <laughs> that does not happen to be my favorite genre. An excellent film if you like that sort of exactly. thing. And I don't. I totally understand why it works and why people enjoy it. It is not going to be a film that I sit down and watch again. But you like some action movies. You can get like, into an action movie. I can get into some action movies. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of it, I, there are very few of those 80s. Like, I think the 80s action film is a very particular genre that is oftentimes sort of suffused with this jingoism that I can never quite get comfortable with. And the whole, like, lone white American male <laughs> rising from the ashes sort of thing. Like, it's just not going to be the thing that gets me excited. I mean, one thing I think you coming to it now don't realize is that this actually broke the mold for action movies. Right, which is something I, I did recognize because the, from the ones that we've watched in this little experiment that we're engaged in, you know, you have the model of the Schwarzenegger or the, um, right. the Rambo, the, like, superhuman jacked dudes right. who are doing superhuman things whereas bruce willis looks like somebody's dad yeah um but still doing fairly superhuman things which well, i mean he's doing more than the average guy yes. could do but he's also got this like vulnerability yeah he gets beat the shit no he's up. definitely broken at like the end. he's bloody and bruised yeah. and you know he's not an invulnerable superman no he does have the benefit of somehow being impenetrable to bullets. <laughs> yeah, the bullets. There are like 12 different dudes with machine guns <laughs> shooting at him that, and no one really lands a hit until the very end. I think he gets shot. He gets in, like, a the glancing shoulder. blow against the shoulder in the final reel, I think. It is glass on the floor mm -hmm. that nearly brings that our is hero his nemesis, down. Yes. yes. It is not the many bullets <laughs> fired at him. So, yeah. You're right about that sort of that lone American male spirit of it, though. That kind of the maverick. We've talked about it before. Yeah. You know, every institution in this film is, as Ebert pointed out, a fucking idiot. Right. The the police are idiots. The, the federal FBI, government are idiots. Yeah, the, media. the corporate guys are idiots. The media. Mm -hmm. Like, 
it's only this one lone street smart cop yeah. who has any brains at all. And then, you know, the other cop who, again, it's all the little guys right. who are more powerful than, than all of these institutions and way smarter than all the institutions. Right. And, and you know, the, the movie leans into that. Like, there are many references to Hans and others referring to McLean's character as, you know, a cowboy. Right. Yeah. You want to live out this American man dream of being the hero and saving the day. And so it is leaning into that. Yes. And another stupid American who right. has watched too many you movies. Watch too many movies says, and, you, and you think you can do it. Um, so, you know, it's in on the joke while still sort of valorizing that that archetype. Right. I mean, it's ve- yeah, it's very his whole character is actually just disdainful from scene one you know he hates being on the plane he hates la and california culture yeah there is some some east coast west There's coast warfare going on in this movie too fucking california right but it's this idea of like they're you know that playing into that idea of like there's a quote-unquote real america and it's not la and it's not california <laughs> right. like that's not where it's happening right so there's there's sort of all of that in there so i do think I mean, I I recognize the criticisms of this movie, and mm-hmm. I know why it might not necessarily be in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I do think it's pretty much a perfect action movie for its time. I think it does almost everything right mm-hmm. in terms of what an action movie should do. It's First of all, it's about 25 minutes before the action starts. Mm-hmm. So it takes the time to actually establish the situation, establish the location, establish the characters. A lot of movies don't do that. Right. I think the characters are very well established and well delineated. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something Matt Zoller cites, who, you know, I read that lukewarm Roger Ebert review. Matt Zoller cites, who's now the editor in chief of RogerEbert.com, talks about this movie a lot. Um, he's a big fan. He said the summer it came out, he saw it 15 times, <laughs> dragging his friends to go see it. Uh, he says, when I admitted this to art house minded friends who assumed it was just Rambo in a building, they looked at me like I was crazy. But the ones I managed to drag to the theater understood instantly that this was no mere time waster, that there was indeed something special about it, a joyous quality and an astonishing sense of craft. And he says, the key to the film's greatness is its sense of fun, which comes out of its determination to make all of its people even cameo players, pulse with life. And I think that's true. I think even very minor characters seem like actual people Mm -hmm. in this. I think all the criminals are great. You know, I mean, they're not, they don't have deep character arcs, but they all have a little humanity to them. Mm -hmm. They all have a little flair to them, Mm -hmm. which again is just something that so many of these kinds of movies just fail to do. Yeah. Um, you had to like the villains in this movie. I mean, I love Alan Rickman in anything that Alan he does. Alan Rickman is just genius. He's just, he, yeah. He brings so much to just whatever role that he's playing. And this could have easily have been this just sort of stock villain right. character. Um, this was his first movie. He, oh, was it? Yeah. I did not know that. Okay. Um, he had just come off, and this is where he got noticed. He had done, he had played Valmont in Dangerous Liaisons mm. for the Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm-hmm. But he had just arrived in L.A., he says... I didn't know anything about L.A. I didn't... I wish I could do Alan Rickman's voice. (laughs) He said, I didn't know about the film business. I'd never made a film before, but I was extremely cheap. He said, after reading the script, he thought, what the hell is this? I'm not doing an action movie. But he said he was ultimately won over by the script. He thought the script was smart. He was impressed, and this is something we'll get your opinion on. He said he was impressed that every single black character in the film was highly intelligent. Mm. You know, again, in contrast to most action movies of the era. But yeah, he kind of makes this movie. He does. He does. He is, you know, the quintessential intelligent villain um, who is, you know, cultured and does have a moral compass. It may not be... (laughs) 
<laughs> there, there, you know, there are sort of rules to this shit. And ideally, he wouldn't want to have to kill anyone. But you know, uh, well, no. Well, I got to stop because the whole the ultimate plan is to blow up. It was to blow the roof but... with everybody on it. <laughs> so no. He was really polite about it. Though. He was very polite. He, you know, got a, brought a couch out for the pregnant yes. assistant. But nonetheless, the ultimate plan was yeah. to blow well, everybody up. Yeah. But he also, I mean, yeah, I liked, I think I liked him because he, he was always sort of two steps ahead, again, of the, this idea of, like, you know, authority, institutions, everything that the cops would do, he mm-hmm. sort of knew, and everything that the FBI was going to do, he knew and sort of based his plan around that. Right. Um, and also played into, you know, this is 1980s America, and, you know, we're at the height of various foreign fears. Yes. And so making it seem as though this hostage situation was about freeing <laughs> terrorists. Various terrorist comrades yeah. across the world and so it's just and knowing that it would work and they would spend all their time sort of trying to scramble and find i love that scene where he's listing the groups just, the, i just read this in time magazine i, I, I read about it in time magazine yeah. so um, but yeah no, i mean alan rickman is amazing apparently this the original plan had been for this to be terrorists mm-hmm. and they decided terrorists are not fun no so let's play into the terrorism right. thing but make them just crooks yeah because robbers are fun right well and capitalism is that's what we do so <laughs> But yeah, it does play into a lot of, of foreign fear, including the Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, taking over right. everything and the Japanese corporation. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, what about uh, what about Bruce Willis? And I don't know if you can separate. I mean, this was not a lot of people watched Moonlighting. I did. But mm-hmm. so I knew Bruce Willis. Yeah. But this was pretty much the first, you know, Bruce Willis bursting on the scene. I don't know. He's so familiar now and so become such a cliche of himself now. Yeah. I don't know if you can separate that. Um, I think because I ha- I don't know that I've seen a ton of Bruce Willis films anyway. I'd actually seen a bit of Moonlighting because my um, my grandma used to watch it. Hmm. So I've probably seen him more through that than I have. I'm trying to think of, have I seen Bruce Willis movies? I've seen his movies, right? I, d- I don't know. Can't think what else you would have seen. Maybe not. Well, Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a different, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I don't know that I was, I went into it with any sort of set idea of who Bruce Willis was or is as an actor. I didn't. There wasn't a lot of baggage I was sort of bringing to it. I mean, he does that, you know, that everyday American man thing very well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you like that sort of thing, which I don't. Smart, but not too smart and funny, but not too funny Mm. and charismatic. And I guess there's an arc where he starts to sort of shed these sort of patriarchal notions of marriage and his, his wife, I guess. That's an interesting question, actually, I want to kind of come back to. Yeah. But. but yeah, he's obviously someone who, you know, shuns authority for the most part, despite being a police officer. There's mm-hmm. there's one instance when he comes upon um, Children of the Corn number one, <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're not going to shoot me because you're a police officer and there are rules. And he says something like, that's what my, like, my boss, keep my chief, my or captain, my keeps, captain keeps telling, keeps me, telling right? me. So it's obvious that even when he's in uniform and, and, um, and working as a police officer in New York, he's still sort of. He's a loose cannon. He's a loose cannon going by his own rules <laughs> to get it done. Sort of Damn thing. it, McLean. You know, so it gets called into the office a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's that character. I would be hard pressed to think if there is a cop hero in the movies. That is not a loose cannon. No, they're all because they have to be. Yeah, no. Yeah, Yeah, no, they all have to be a little bit smarter than their boss, a little (laughs) bit smarter than the system. Just like, no, I know how to get this done, and this is how it happens. Mm -hmm. But he is, yeah, I mean. But I think he's pretty likable here. He's likable. And and especially if you imagine Schwarzenegger 
Right. In this movie. Right. It would be insufferable. Yeah. No, because there's a humanity to him, and he is likable. I just think sometimes it, it, it does veer from being wily and agile to being just sort of preternaturally. <laughs> I mean, there are some interesting yeah. physics happening with some stuff in this film. But again, like, some... it's an action film, so it's silly to right. even argue those points. But yeah, so. All right, well, let's talk about the relationship with the wife. Okay. This is Bonnie Bedelia. Bonnie Bedelia. And yeah, there's a little... I mean, I have seen this referred to as both a feminist action movie and an anti-feminist action movie. Mm. Um, frankly, I don't think it's much of either. No. I don't know that there's a lot of depth. But I think she's a good character. Yeah, I mean, she's no damsel in distress. Right. She's um, tough and level-headed. And... Right. When the uh, terrorists first arrive, she's sitting right next to Takagi, who is head of uh, Nakatomi. And she's the one that tells him, you know, don't, like, they go, they're asking for him. And she's like, don't move, don't say anything. Right. Um, and then as the evening wears on, she's the one that goes to Hans and says, okay, we have a pregnant woman out there. You need to, she needs to be comfortable. Can we bring out a couch? And, you know, unless you want a mess, we're going to need to start going to the bathroom in groups. Right. And then once Hans realizes that she's the wife of John McClane and she, he sort of kidnaps her she's still sort of uh defiant and and mocking of him you know she's like you talk this big game but all you re- all you really are is just sort of a petty thief you're right. you're just a criminal and he, he says <laughs> i'm an excellent i'm an exceptional thief <laughs> so um so yeah no she's definitely not you know a a, a wilting flower or anything like that right. whether or not this is a feminist film i feel like is well, she's so she's moved to L.A. She's right. gotten she's moved this to great LA. job. She's nice, really nice office. Very nice office. I'm assuming very well-paying job. And she's taking the children to L.A. So they, she and John are estranged. She's using her. She's using maiden her maiden name, name, all of which offends him because right. he's you know a more traditionalist. Then in the end, that's yeah, that's that's where it becomes a problem. Right. <laughs> so she's been doing amazing at this job, and because of that, um, they gave her a Rolex watch. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, when Hans is, has her her in his grips and John shoots Hans and Hans falls back through the window, through the window. and is basically dragging Holly with him and holding on to her wrist basically by that Rolex watch. Right, caught, caught on the Rolex wrist watch. And so John, you know, unhooks the watch and then yes, Hans the falls symbol to of death. her success. Right, just goes down, right? So it's just, and then at the end, when he introduces Holly to Al, Mm-hmm. Sergeant Powell. Yeah, Reginald Val Johnson. Right. He says, you know, this is my wife, Holly Gennaro. She says, actually, it's Holly McLean. Yes, takes um, his So name. she's now reclaimed <laughs> her married name. And, you know, her office is blown up. So is she going back to New York? <laughs> yeah, we don't know. So that's, I mean, yeah. So it's, it's. I think in the sequels, actually, they are still estranged. So mm-hmm. actually, it's, I think okay. it all works out okay. But. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know that it's, I wouldn't say it's anti-feminist, but I don't know that I would say that it's feminist. <laughs> okay. Uh, you want to talk about Al? Sure. Um, this this was pre-Family Matters, okay. so he got the job at, on Family Matters off of this, he said. They said he looked like a darn good cop. Let's keep him a cop. <laughs> oh, was he a cop? I never watched yeah. that show. Yeah, Family Matters, he was a cop in Chicago. He was oh, a Chicago okay. Cop. Yes, so we meet Sergeant Powell buying lots of Twinkies <laughs> at a little gas station, and he gets called to Nakatomi Plaza. He does a little ride through, looks around, talks to the guard without knowing that the guard is one of Hans's henchmen and declares situation all clear, everything's fine. <laughs> then a body falls on his squad car, and he 
does what any sane person would do, which is back the fuck out of that situation <laughs> as quickly as possible. And does this a phenomenal just sort of action shot of him driving his car backwards, backwards. away from Nakatomi Plaza off like this little cliff thing. And Bruce Willis is shooting at him, yes, too. Yes, trying to get his attention. Which is maybe a little overkill. Yes. I also, you know, you shoot at a guy from the 30th floor yeah. of a building. I don't know how accurate you can count on being. Yeah. Like, he probably could have killed the guy right there. So, um, just to get his attention, he realizes that there obviously is a situation <laughs> and calls her back up. The great love story of Die Hard is between Al and John. Oh, it absolutely is. The end, when they finally meet face to face, it's like the slow mo yeah. with they the see love each other across the room, in. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very, it's very bromancy. That's a very sweet love story. <laughs> so, I'd rather much watch that film than any other, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we find out that Al is the reason that he has been, you know, a desk officer for so long is because, you know, in his rookie career, he made a mistake of shooting a 13 year old boy who was playing with a ray gun. Right. And, you know, he, he was like, I couldn't see and it looked like a gun and I made a mistake and now I can't shoot and I can't bring myself to sort of pull my gun on anyone. Right. And then he gets his sort of redemption sure we'll call, we'll call it a redemption arc at the end where children of the corn number two that we thought was dead <laughs> is not dead and just sort of this is carl rises uh, from the ashes alexander gudinov and uh without hesitating uh al shoots him many times and brings yeah. him down and so <laughs> reclaims his manhood by murdering someone you say that so cynically well that's what it is <laughs> The uh, apparently the German that everybody is speaking throughout this movie, mm-hmm. by the way, was total gibberish. Really, <laughs> which just cracks me up. They were like, "Should we bother to learn German?" Nah, let's, let's forget just say it. Shit? Just okay. make it sound German. Awesome. <laughs> we have several of the quintessential '80s douchebags in this movie. Yes. Um, you already mentioned Ellis, the cokehead, coked up Ellis, lawyer, mm-hmm. whatever he is at the corporate offices. Mm-hmm. Who is just pure yuppie, yuppie evil, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then we also have the uh, reporter, mm-hmm. played by William Atherton, famous as a dick <laughs> from Ghostbusters and Real Genius. I always wonder about these guys that all they do is play dicks. Some people have the face. <laughs> like, you look like you an asshole. You are just a punchable you guy. You just look like an asshole. You're going to get all those parts. Mm-hmm. And then another one of those guys plays the police chief or the deputy police chief. Um, that's Paul Gleason, famous mm-hmm. as the teacher from The Breakfast Club. Oh, yes, you get the horns. <laughs> you get, you yes. the bull, you get the horns. You get yes. the horns, yes. All idiots. All idiots. All odious people. <laughs> Particularly the reporter who then goes to Holly's home to interview her children and exploit them. Yes, and to threaten their and housekeeper. And threatens the housekeeper by saying, I will call INS if you don't let me in this house to interview the children. So he's a shit person and I would have been fine with him dying, but he doesn't. <laughs> no, so. but Holly punches him in the face. Holly the does punch it. him in the face, but he really should have just died. So... <laughs> Okay. But then you oh, you also have the two Johnson & Johnson FBI Johnson & Johnson, the FBI guys, yeah. Who are very excited to be in a helicopter shooting people. It's pretty <laughs> gross. Um, and they die, which is nice. Well, okay. that's what one of the reviews I was... It might have been Matt Zollersite's piece that I read. Was talking about as macho a movie as it is, it's kind of an anti-macho movie at the same time. Because you, you have all of these gung-ho right. guys that are just idiots and mm-hmm. end up paying for their stupidity. Yeah. No, that's true. But 
it's celebrated in Bruce Willis's character. So it's 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 hard to sort of parse what the what line they fall on there. Right. I guess we're gonna need some more FBI guys. <laughs> <laughs> Did the action scenes and the suspense scenes do anything for you? There was a lot. <laughs> It's very loud. <laughs> they are very loud. It's very loud. Uh-huh. Uh, Bruce Willis actually supposedly lost most of the hearing in one ear making this movie. It's ridiculous. Because it was, apparently it was louder than most, like they, the director wasn't satisfied with the normal blanks that were used on movie sets and mm-hmm. got something louder. And so it was a very loud set to be on. This one goes to 11. Sort of this thing? one went to 11, yeah, yes, okay. which was at least one too many. Yeah. For Bruce Willis's eardrums. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the machine gun action was very loud. The, you know, throwing the explosives into the elevator shaft was very loud. That was a questionable move. I don't, yeah, I mean. I, that's. I feel like I that mean, could he was pissed off, granted. Brought the building kinda, down, but okay. Yeah. Like, he doesn't know who's down there. He doesn't, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I mean, they were, you know, typical for the 80s, these sort of huge set pieces and moments, lots of sort of close-ups of bullets ripping through various people's bodies, mainly from John's, and like he would shoot and then perfectly hit somebody in the kneecap and like rip their knee off or something. (laughs) So, you know, there was a lot of that, but that's par for the course. It is to be expected. (laughs) A lot of headshots, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the action scenes are are very well done. Mm Mm-hmm. I think McTiernan does a good job of establishing the space. I think we always know where we are yeah. within the building and yeah. everything. And again, it's just something that when you see it done badly, you realize how well constructed a movie like this is. Mm-hmm. We get some personal conflict. Carl is pretty pissed off about his brother. Yeah, and Hans won't let him just go out and <laughs> murder John in cold blood quite yet because he's trying to keep the shit under control. Yeah, but Carl's not listening. This is, again, no. it's one of those macho things that's yeah. like Carl just, you know, yeah. isn't being smart about it. He just wants to go get revenge. Right. Uh, pretty good, ugly, dirty fist fight between he and yes. Bruce Willis. They fight hand-to-hand combat for quite a while. That's a pretty extended yeah. sequence um, that ends with Carl sort of hung by some chain. <laughs> yeah, that's when we think Carl is we dead. We think Carl's dead. Carl's not dead. <laughs> no, Carl's not dead. I meant to ask you, are you willing to concede now that you had not seen the second half of this movie? I will concede that, but again, I will say that in Gene Belcher's brilliant work hard or die trying girl, <laughs> Hans Gruber falls off the building. So uh-huh. I knew that that's how it ended was with Hans Gruber falling off the building. What I don't really need to know anything else <laughs> in between that. There, there weren't nuances in this story that you missed out on. <laughs> nuances in, the in Die Hard? Yeah. No, there were no nuances. None at all. <laughs> Argyle's a weird character. Oh, Argyle, yes. We didn't talk about Argyle. No. I don't know how to feel about Argyle. This is the limo driver. Yes. He's a weird character. He's a little bit of a weird character. Um, he instantly becomes Bruce Willis's best friend yes. and loyal servant. Sure. Because he's willing to just like, he says, okay, well, you go up there, see if you're going to reconcile with the wife. I'll just go wait in the parking garage right. forever for yeah. you. Like, it's Christmas Eve, Argyle. Do you not have plans already? Yeah. Do you not? It's also like a little bit of a caricature. And yes. then he's <laughs> so, so I'm partially just uncomfortable with him as a character because um, it's very much that sort of jive young black man sort of thing. Uh, um, and then he sort of played as like the oblivious person, like all of this stuff is going on around him, major shootouts, explosions, bodies falling off yeah. of buildings, and he's listening to his music super loud in the limo and like talking to his girlfriend on the phone or something like and just completely, just completely missing misses all, and of, all it, of this right? stuff is going on. Right. But, again, has a little redemption moment at the end where 
where he sees Theo, the other, um, the one black person on Hans's crew. Yeah, this is the computer expert. Right. Trying to... Who's also a good character. He's a good character. Very well drawn character. Very well drawn. Very funny and smart. Probably the most efficient of Hans's crew. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And he sees him trying to escape and so he runs the limo into like the getaway van and traps him in and then punches him out. Yeah. And is able to sort of save the day there. Um, Which is actually kind of a questionable move considering that Argyle doesn't actually know anything about what's happening. He just sees him. He's like, this looks weird. He sees a guy coming out in an ambulance and is like, okay, I'm just going to ram my limo into him. Uh, and then he just decides to punch that person out. So yeah, it's a little weird, but. And then at the end of the movie, after everything is over, he smashes his limo through the perimeter. Mm-hmm. There's 80 million cops in there. And here you have this black kid driving a limo, smashing through the perimeter. I think that was a risky move. Well, Val Johnson was ready to shoot him. <laughs> yeah. And. <laughs> Could have been the second kid. John was like. Al Powell killed accidentally. And then he and uh, Holly ride off into the sunset in a limo. <laughs> It's a beautiful moment. Okay. I feel like maybe we don't have that much to say about Die Hard. Um, Did you have a favorite part of this film? Wow. Really? (laughs) Uh, Favorite part of Die Hard. Again, I very much respected the relationship between... Sergeant Powell and John. <laughs> I thought that was a very loving, it's sweet It's a sweet and tender relationship. It was very beautiful. They uh, share some shit. They shared some shit. Over that radio. They got very close. Which is especially touching considering that everybody in the world was listening to them. The bad guys were listening to them. Yeah. The cops were listening to them. The FBI was listening to them. But, you know, they, they bonded. They did bond. It was very nice. So that may have been my sort of favorite element okay. of the film. And Alan Rickman has to be, too. I mean, of course, Alan Rickman goes with us. I mean, it's just... I mean, Alan Rickman, he has that thing where it's just like every single line reading is interesting mm-hmm. and smart. And you yeah. just listen to him talk all day. Yeah. I liked, and this obviously says something about who we are, but whenever a foreign character in a film has to imitate an American, they immediately <laughs> go dumb and obnoxious. Yes. Which I kind of love. <laughs> and so Alan Rickman sort of playing American. Uh-huh. It was just, it, one, it was painful because it's just like, oh, God, you sound terrible. It sounds so wrong. Yeah, it was not that good of an It was not accent. very convincing. But I was just like, where are you from? <laughs> it was sort of Texas. Yeah, and they go it to was, this sort of draw. Yeah, it was very kind of odd. Place. It was very odd. But yeah, I liked that little moment. So one false note. And there may have, I mean, there are a number of questionable notes. But <laughs> that end standoff between... John and Hans, while he has Holly um, and um, random terrorist number three or whatever. Yeah. Where they all just start laughing maniacally mm-hmm. instead of shooting one another. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Like, I just feel like Hans is smarter than that. Like, he took 10 minutes to laugh at something that, like, just to laugh. Well, I mean, at that point, Hans thought he had won. Right, but just shoot the person. Like, he didn't know. He's been very efficient John up until then. He's like, okay, I'm going to count. Shoulders. I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to shoot you, and I'm probably not even going to make it to three before I shoot you. Like he's been very efficient <laughs> up until this point, and now yeah, he hasn't really hesitated. Yeah, to shoot now you're like, head. oh, I'm going to laugh at just the absurdity of this situation. I like the scene where he shoots Ellis because he look. Ellis thinks he's totally in control of that yeah. situation. He thinks he's, you know, schmoozing the guy. Mm-hmm. And Rickman looks at him like he's the most fascinating bug yeah. he has ever seen. <laughs> he's just like, what the hell are you? Yeah. Which is, that's what I'm saying. And like, waste no time just shooting him in the head. Mm. And now you want to just stand and at this very pivotal moment in your plan when <laughs> you've gotten your money, you need to get the hell out of the building. Let's stand here for five minutes and laugh to ourselves. 
instead of just shooting you. I don't even remember what they were laughing about. No, that's the thing. I think it's just like the silliness of the situation. <laughs> they were just like, ah, I got you. And it's like, okay, so we're going to laugh about this. So you would have just shot him in the head and yeah. gotten away with your $640 million. Exactly. It's, you know, in line with the villain who wants to, you know, tell his whole fucking Monologue. life story. Yeah. It's like, just handle your business <laughs> and then go about your way. So... <laughs> That was a disappointment because up until that point, he'd been very smart. Well, that's why he fell 30 stories to his death. Chekhov's Rolex. <laughs> and again, so one of the things we talked about at the top of like what makes a Christmas film a Christmas film. Well, that, that was the question I was going to end on. And this do. idea of like, oh, that it's, there's a specialness and a magic to Christmas that stuff that can happen on that day can't happen any other day. And he says in that movie, it's Christmas, the time of miracles. <laughs> it's time of miracles. You're going to get that fucking vault open and we're going to get $600 million. So that makes it a Christmas film. Okay, so you agree it is a Christmas film. I do agree it is a Christmas okay, film. Okay, I had my argument all yes. prepared, but you're already no, there. I agree it is absolutely a Christmas film. It has, you know, greed and... <laughs> Cocaine and Christmas miracles. Family. Family drama. Family drama. What's his wife's name? Holly. Uh, uh, very Holly, clever. Yeah. Very clever. <laughs> oh, and he puts a Santa hat on uh, Children of the Corn number one, his dead body. So that's another <laughs> yep. point for Christmas film. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, mm-hmm. ho, ho. <laughs> it's absolutely a Christmas movie. It's all about family reconciliation and... Get the Run DMC Christmas song on the soundtrack. <laughs> Excellent use of Beethoven's Ode Beethoven's, to Joy. Yes. Okay, so are you now willing, nay, eager mm. to watch the Die Hard sequels? Oh, no. Again, I won't be watching this And again. in fact, come to think of it, Die Hard 2 is also a Christmas-adjacent movie. Uh, that one takes place in an airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also Christmas time. So we could have just done a double feature. No, we couldn't. Of have. those two films. No. In fact, in retrospect, that's what we should have done. And maybe we can still fit that in this week. What do you think? I will not be watching any more Die Hard ever. <laughs> so. Die Hard 3 mm-hmm. is uh, takes place in New York City. That's the one with Sam Jackson mm-hmm. and Bruce Willis in that movie. That's That's a pretty good one. No, thank you. We could do that one. No, thank you. Okay, so do you feel our uh, our Christmas movie marathon is, is off to a good start here? Well, no, I didn't really enjoy it, so how are we defining good? <laughs> I guess that's a no. Yeah, I mean, we did it, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't particularly care for the movie. You didn't hate the movie. I didn't hate the movie, but again, I will not sit down and watch it ever again. <laughs> you probably will. Why would I do that? This is what you say, and then months later, I find you just flipping channels and stopping on one of these movies that we watched. When have I ever done that? You have done that. I've never totally done that. that. I've never done that. You've totally done that. Okay. Never done it. Take my word for it. She has done that. I have absolutely never done that. that's our show we want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week as we veer about as far from die hard as it's possible to go and watch a 21st century new classic with two oscar nominated female leads and very few explosions todd haynes christmas adjacent lesbian love story carol from 2015 so we're going from toxic masculinity to repressed homosexuality 
Yes. Okay. In the meantime, you can visit us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can listen to other episodes, find our contact and social media links, or leave a comment on the episode. As always, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers. Okay, anything else on Die Hard? I don't think you can jump off a building using a fire hose. I love that, I love I that scene. It's a preposterous stunt. It's ridiculous. I love that stunt. You die immediately. <laughs> <laughs> the whole rooftop explodes just, just as he jumps off. You just can't do he it. He swings it down and he swings against the window. It's not how life works. Then he has to swing out and shoot the window. Right. And smash through it. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's a great. It's like again, stunt. like that's some shit you see in the Matrix, and the whole point of the Matrix is the shit isn't real, so that's why we can do this. <laughs> so no, no. You're a hard critic. <laughs>